Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. We're back in our series on Revelation, and we're on the second last letter. You know, the the book of Revelation starts off with these seven letters to the churches, and we're on the second last one today, and then uh, next week we'll do the letter to the church at at, uh, at Laodicea, and then after that we're into the kind of the rest of the book, which is more what people think of when they think of the book of Revelation and some of the prophecy and stuff, but these letters to the churches are just so uh, powerful, they're so pastoral, they're so applicable. The rest of the book is actually too as well, as you're going to find out, but the letter to the church of Philadelphia here, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, verses 7 through 13 of chapter 3. And let's do this together and then we'll pray. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is Jesus speaking. It's all in red letters if you've got a red letter Bible. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my word, this is a wonderful promise which we'll look at at the end of this message, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Bow your heads with me, and let's just ask Jesus to minister his word to us today. Jesus, thank you for the book of Revelation. And thank you for these letters. You are the one who decided we needed these words. And so they are food for our souls, and they are necessary for the church. And Lord, we want to, we want to meditate on them today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring them into our lives. That first of all, you would grow us in our minds in truth, and in our hearts in feelings of passion for you. In your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One. Now, I'm going to start sounding like a broken record, but it's because in every one of these seven letters, uh, Jesus continually does the same thing over and over and over again in in the introduction, and that is he directly takes titles that belong to God and God alone in the Old Testament and applies them to himself. And this is no, uh, this is, uh, no exception. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's around, somewhere around about 40 times where God and only God can use this title of himself, but God says, I am the Holy One. So again, when Jesus does this, when he says, I am the Holy One, he's directly taking a title that applies to God and he's applying it to himself. He is God. Now, the interesting thing is in this letter, over and over again, he also talks about my God and he talks about the Father. So on the one hand, he takes the title. On the other hand, he talks about my God. There's again, we see this Trinity thing, which we cannot grasp fully. But the fact that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament and yet somehow also separate in some way um, when he talks about it. But it's just amazing. But Jesus is God, the Holy One. And then he goes on to say the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. Now, what is the key of David? All right. And uh, this is directly taken like so many other uh, things in the book of Revelation. If you want to know what's going on, 
A lot of times Christians are just mystified. They just read the book of Revelation. What on earth is going on? But when you realize that the book of Revelation is full of allusions to the Old Testament more than 500 times, nobody has an exact number, but it's well documented that more than 500 times in the book of Revelation, the, the book of Revelation is taking things from the Old Testament and putting them, in, putting them in the new. In this one verse here, we have multiple examples of Old Testament allusions in one verse. And this is another one of those. You read the key of David, you go, I don't know what this means. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. In fact, when I read it to you, I'm going to put it up on the screen. You're going to see that, that this, this intro to Philadelphia is exactly directly out of Isaiah 22. There's Isaiah 22, verse 22. And uh, it says in Isaiah, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. I mean, that is just directly, there it is. The letter to the church of Philadelphia, the intro, is taken right out of that. Now, the question is, what's happening in Isaiah 22? Because that's going to help us understand what's happening in Revelation chapter 3. Okay? So who's talking here? Well, in Isaiah 22, this is a prophecy Isaiah has given. God has shown him something. And he's prophesying to a man named Shebna. Not a lot of those out there anymore, but he's prophesying to a man named Shebna, who is a very powerful person in in the kingdom of Israel. He's the second in command. He's what is known as, as the head steward for King Hezekiah. And Shebna is not faithful to the Lord. And so Isaiah is is prophesying to him, and he's saying, God is going to take your position, and he's going to give it to a faithful servant of the Lord, who is Eliakim. And so he says this about Eliakim, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Now what's going on there is the head steward, okay, would would carry around on his shoulder this big key. Uh, Usually they were wooden keys. Um, And back in those days, uh, they didn't have the engineering capabilities we do now, these complex locks, and you can fit in a small little lock that'll fit in your pocket, and you can unlock doors. Their keys tended to be much bigger, much cruder. Um, and the reason this head steward had that key, uh, partly it was just a symbol of authority. In ancient times, keys were a symbol of authority. But also, the key would open something like the king's chambers or something like that. And the reason for this is that the head steward was the one who decided who got to come into the king's presence and who did not. So if you wanted to see the king, you had to go through the steward. And so if he said no to you, you couldn't bring your request to the king. That's a lot of power. And plus he managed the the king's affairs. So, uh, and that's a lot of authority, okay? So when Jesus says now in Revelation 3 that I am the one who has the key of David, what he's saying because, and, and, and Revelation 3 gets taken so many different ways, and, and a lot of times people look at it and they say, okay, a lot of times people take Revelation 3, it's a rhema word to them, which is great, by the way. A rhema word is when God takes a, a, a verse in Scripture and applies it specifically to your life. And that's just life. I mean, when you're in your devotion time and God takes a word from the Scripture and applies it specifically to your life, that's a wonderful thing. Those are wonderful devotional times, and we need those. I love those. The thing about a rhema word, though, is the most important interpretation, you always start with what it means in its context, and then the rhema word is just for you personally. So a lot of people have read this verse in Revelation 3, and they think of it as God's opening a door of opportunity for me. It's a door of opportunity for me in my job. It's a door of opportunity for me in ministry, whatever it is, and that's what they think Revelation 3 is talking about, okay? Now, that's wonderful if you've gotten that as a rhema word for yourself and your situation. That's great, but that's not at all in the context what Revelation 3 is about. 
God is not opening up a door of ministry for the Philadelphian church. They are a church, as we're going to see later on, that is just barely hanging on. They're small and they have little power. He's not opening up a door of ministry. He's not opening up a door of evangelism. This specifically has to do with the context of Isaiah 22, verse 22, which is Jesus is saying, I have the key of David, which just like in Isaiah was the, was the, the, the authority to decide who gets into the king's presence and who doesn't. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who decides who gets into God's kingdom and who doesn't. I'm the one who has all the authority to decide who gets into God's presence and who, who doesn't. This doesn't have to do with evangelism. This doesn't have to do with opportunity. This has to do with salvation in the presence of God. Because that's what the steward did in the Old Testament. He decided who got in and who didn't. Okay? And you say, well, why would, why would this be encouraging for the church of Philadelphia? Well, the thing you have to understand is, in Philadelphia, there was a very strong Jewish contingent, okay? And, uh, and that's why, you know, later in this letter, uh, John writes about the synagogue of Satan. Now, unfortunately, throughout church history, many Christians have taken that totally wrong and have gone to this place of, like, being anti-Jewish. It's absolutely horrible. This passage is not anti-Jewish. And the reason I can tell you that is because most of the, many of the Christians in the Philadelphian church were also Jews, I just want to explain that. It's really important you know that. Because oftentimes you read in Revelation, you read in the Gospels, or you read in the book of Acts, and it always talks about the Jews opposing the Gospel. Well, it's true that some Jews oppose the Gospel, but did you know that everywhere the apostles went in all the Gentile cities, including these cities in Revelation, do you know who the first people were who got saved as well? It was the Jews. It was not just the Jews opposing the gospel. Some Jews were opposing other Jews who had accepted the gospel. This wasn't Jews opposing Gentile Christians, okay? It's really important you understand that. Paul even says that in the book of Romans clearly. Do you know who, why the Jews were always in the early church? They were, the early church was overwhelmingly Jewish. You want to know why? Because wherever they went in the world, Paul would first go to the Jewish people. And you want to know why he would do that? Any city he went to, he did not start with Gentiles. He says this in the book of Romans explicitly. He would always start with the Jews. And the reason is this. They were the most ready for the gospel because they already believed in God and were looking for a Messiah. So that's why they were the most fertile soil for getting new Christians. So Paul, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet he would always go to Jews first, get whatever converts he could. Now, of course, he would go to the Jews, and of course, some would accept and some would reject, just like with us Gentiles. But then because they were so close, you would have this schism, and the Jews that would reject would often, because, again, they see a bunch of their fellow Jews going off to this thing, which they think is blasphemy, and because of that, the Jews that were, that were left would often, there would be, uh, you know, some, some severe bickering and persecution that would go from them to these Jews. And the same is happening in Philadelphia. This synagogue of Jews in Philadelphia, a bunch of the Jews in Philadelphia give their lives to Jesus. Now, this synagogue of Jews in Philadelphia are telling these Jews, you're out of the kingdom now. You're not getting in. You're blaspheming. To, talk, to say that this man, Jesus, is Yahweh, that is absolute blasphemy. You're not getting in the kingdom. You're not God's people anymore. They're saying all of that. Think about how encouraging this is now when Jesus comes along. And so these Jews are removed from synagogue life. They're not even allowed to go to synagogue. They're cut off from, from the religion that they, that they grew up since birth. They're cut off from many of their own people. And now Jesus comes to them and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. They don't decide who gets into my kingdom. I do. I have the key of David. And when I open a door, nobody can shut it. In other words, when I open a door to salvation, nobody shuts it. Jesus and Jesus alone decides who's saved. 
He decides who's getting in heaven. He decides who's getting into, into uh, God's presence. This isn't about opportunity. This is about salvation. He says, when I open a door, it doesn't get shut. And on the other hand, if it's shut, nobody else opens it. It doesn't matter who your God is. Think of, by the way, think of how encouraging this passage would continue to be today around the world to people who convert to Christianity from Islam, for example, or Hinduism. And let's say a, a Muslim person gives their life to Jesus, and now their family says, you, you're, you've blasphemed Allah. You've blasphemed the prophet Muhammad. You can't get into heaven. You're going to hell. And they read this passage, and they say, actually, Muhammad and Allah don't decide who gets into heaven. Jesus does. And if he opens the door, nobody can shut it. And if it's shut, nobody else can open it. No other God, no other prophet can open the door of salvation. That is Jesus and Jesus alone because he holds the key of David. And that's what's happening here with the key of David in, in Revelation chapter 3. But now I want to go on a, on a rabbit trail, and not just a little rabbit trail. It's going to take a chunk of this message, and then we'll come back to Revelation 3. The reason I want to go on this rabbit trail is I think it's going to tie together some things I've said in the other messages about uh, some of the letters, particularly Pergamum and Thyatira. And it's also going to correct, because this whole thing with keys and authority is a common theme in, in the New Testament. And particularly, there's a couple of passages in the Gospels where Jesus talks about keys and authority that are very regularly by Christians misunderstood and misapplied. And it just ties in here perfectly, and I think it ties together some things from the other letters to Revelation. So we're going to go on a little, more than a little rabbit trail, and then we'll come back to Revelation at the end of the message. But I want to go to two passages in Matthew that also talk about keys and talk about authority. And uh, the first, both of them are very famous passages. The first one is Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 say this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So we've all heard that verse, uh, you know, a hundred times. If you've been in church for any amount of time, this is a very famous passage. So Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, again, we've said this before, but just a reminder, because many Christians don't realize it. This is an offensive verse, not a defensive. The gates of hell means it's not hell pounding on our gates trying to get in. It's us going to hell's gates and pounding on the gates of hell to defeat hell. Okay, So it's offensive. But anyway, verse 19 now he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So there, there's this idea of keys again, and in the ancient world, keys symbolized authority. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is where uh, Christians, and well-meaning, again, my, this is not a criticism, uh, but well-meaning Christians over the years have taken this passage all kinds of places, because we all know this has something to do with authority. Keys are authority, this has something to do with authority. But this authority to bind and loose has been used for many, many different things. So, for example, many Christians use this passage to teach this is about binding and loosing demons, okay? And I'll just say right off the bat here, this has nothing to do with demons, okay? Now, having said that, there's other passages in the New Testament that certainly talk about our authority to cast out demons. So I'm not disputing. We, have, we do have authority over demons. There's no question. That is not what this passage is about. We do not have authority to bind or loose. Just think about that for a moment. We have authority to bind demons and to loose them? If it's about demons, we have authority to loose demons, like sick them? Like, I'm loosing some demons on you, you whatever, right? No. The authority to bind and loose is not talking about demons, obviously, because we don't have no authority to loose demons, okay? 
This is also not talking about sickness. There are certain, you know, you know, extreme brands of cares uh, in, in the charismatic circles where, you know, they talk about binding and loosing sickness. But again, this has the context here. This has nothing to do with sickness. And again, what would that even mean? The authority to bind and loose? Do you have? Do I have the authority if I get upset at some people at work to loose the flu on them or to loose a stuffy nose? No. Clearly, binding and loosing. This is not about sickness. Never mind. You know, there's all kinds of problems even with binding sickness. Okay? But this is not about sickness. This is not about wealth. We don't have, we don't have authority to claim wealth or to bind it or to loose it or any of those sorts of things. This is about none of those things. When Jesus is talking about binding and loosing, you have to realize we don't just come to this now in our modern context and try to fill in whatever we think it means in English. We have to go back to the original context. And the thing you have to understand is in the original context, the disciples were not scratching their heads about this. Jesus was using regular, everyday language with them that they understood. And binding and loosing was a very common term in Jesus' day that the rabbis used all the time. In fact, you can go online after this. You can go on the internet, and you can find all kinds of examples where the rabbis are writing in Jesus' day about binding and loosing things. They use this term often. And what they used it for was this. When a rab, uh, see, the rabbis were the ones who had the authority to interpret the scriptures. They were the ones who knew it the best. And so they were the ones that people would go to and say, help me interpret the scripture for my life. So, because uh, for example, something like the Sabbath. So the Old Testament law says, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. So, but it doesn't define exactly what work is. So people would go to the rabbis and they would say, okay, uh, so what does that mean? What if I need to carry a bundle of, of firewood to my in-law's house, which is two and a half miles away? They would go to a rabbi, and they would ask, and the rabbi would apply the Old Testament law to their everyday life. And he would either say, yes, that's permitted, which was called loosing, or he would say, that is not permitted, which that was called binding. They used this all the time. And then, of course, some of them would disagree with each other, and so you'd have, you can literally find writings where you know, Rabbi Akiva binds you from doing this or walking so and so far or doing this on the Sabbath. But Rabbi, you know, whatever his name is, looses you on these things. And they would have disagreements. But binding and loosing had to do with, with permitting or not permitting. Binding was, means it's forbidden and loosing means it's permitted. Okay? So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving, he's transferring because remember, he's right in the context. He's saying, on this rock, I will build my church. I'm starting a new thing. The rabbis, for the most part, now many of them will become Christians after, actually after his death. There was a lot of rabbis who were part of the early church. But as a, kind of as a whole, they were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting him. So Jesus said, I'm starting a new thing. I'm starting my church. And it's not going to work for you guys to keep going back to them for interpretations of the law because they're missing the biggest thing about the law, which is it points to Jesus. So he's saying, I'm giving to the church now the authority that they have right now, which is you guys now are going to be the ones who are binding and loosing. You're going to be the ones who are applying to people's lives, everyday lives, the scriptures. And we see this right through the book of Acts. What, what happens in the book of Acts throughout is binding and loosing by the early church. So first question comes up, uh, can Gentiles get saved? So the church leaders who at this point are all Jewish because the Bible is not anti-Jewish. The Bible itself is Jewish. It was the Bible documents for us an inter-Jewish struggle between Jews and Jews. Okay. So the Jews were the good guys and the bad guys because they were on both sides of this in the New Testament. 
But the question comes up, can Gentiles be saved? So the Jewish leaders all get together. They pray. They debate. Doesn't tell us how long. It looks like it took longer than an hour. There's probably some, some disagreements, maybe some heat at times. But at the end of it, they say, well, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that Gentiles can get saved. Binding and loosing. It's permitted. This, is, this must be what the scriptures are saying. And they're working through. Is, this must be what the Old Testament was saying. Then the question comes up, well, do they have to be circumcised? And so they have another, you know, get together in Jerusalem and all the Gentile Christians are standing outside and they're going, please not, please not, please not. <laughs> and they get together and they're praying it through and they're discussing and at the end they say, no, you don't have to be circumcised. You're, you're loosed from that. And all the Gentiles went, woo, Christians, yes. That was a powerful evangelistic tool. Suddenly the gates flooded open anyway, but they, they're binding and loosing, Right? Do they have to, can Jew and Gentile eat together? We see them wrestling with this in Ephesians. We see them wrestling with this in Acts, binding and loosing. They were working through the implications of Scripture for the church. And of course, now by extension, some of that authority in a church now, now it's not an absolute authority, but some of that authority is part of why I do my job here. I'm studying the Scriptures, and then I attempt to apply them for our lives together. Now, of course, it's not, an, it's not authority, and nowhere in the scriptures it meant to be this way, that you guys just hear what I say, and now you must obey. I have no authority in and of myself. Only the scripture has authority what to, tell, to tell us what to do. My authority only rests in studying it, and then can you guys see the same things I'm seeing? And if you agree, then we're bound to whatever the scripture tells us, not what I say. And if you disagree, you just disagree with me, and that's fine. Nobody's bound by what I say. We're bound by what this says. But the church now attempts to apply this to our lives. That, that's what binding and loosing is in Matthew 16. Does that make sense? Now, if we go ahead two chapters, there's another um, binding and loosing, and it is a little bit different, but again, it has to do with authority in the church. Let's just go there. This is another famous passage, Matthew 18, verse 18, uh, is where it is, but we'll start in verse 15. Yeah, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And by the way, oh, we could just sit on that passage for a while. Hey, wouldn't that be life-changing if we did that? If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. How often do we do the exact opposite? If a brother, it does not say if a brother sins against you, go and talk behind his back. If a brother sins against you, internalize it and become bitter and tell other people how bad they are. That's not what it says either. It says if a brother sins against you, if you're hurt by someone else, now this actually takes courage, but if you don't have the courage to do this, then you shouldn't talk about it to others either. But it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That has nothing to do with this message, but I just thought, wow, that is just life-changing. But anyway, between you and him alone, it always starts privately. And then, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So it starts just private, and then it stays private. You get some trusted people. Other people who love Jesus, you bring them into it. And you try to pray through, you try to work it through. That's, this is how we deal with things. This is the Christian way to do it. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Basically, what he's saying is, if this person is openly living in sin and you've tried to work it out privately, you've gone through different stages, you've prayed together, you've discussed, you've been open and, and con but in a kind and loving way, then at the end of it, if, the, if, if this person just insists on living in open sin, the church is supposed to remove them from fellowship. Let them be as a Gentile or tax collector. They're now on the outside. 
They're now on the outside. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. This is now not a person who's serving and leading in your midst. This is not a person you're taking the Lord's Supper with. They are now on the outside of fellowship. That's what, actually what the church is supposed to do. That's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, now here we get the binding and loosing again. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, obviously in the context here, this has nothing to do with demons. This has nothing to do with sickness. This has nothing to do with wealth. In the context here, again, this has to do with authority. And in this case, it is the authority of the church. Not one person on a power trip, but the authority of the church, the church leadership body or whatever it is, to after trying to work through issues of the person who's living openly in sin, to finally at some point say, actually, we're going to remove this person from fellowship. Jesus, in this passage, is giving the church as a body, prayerfully, not one person, but prayerfully together to discern and decide whether someone should be removed from fellowship or whether someone should be welcomed into fellowship. That's what this is. That's binding and loosing. And Jesus is saying, heaven, that is the authority in heaven. You can, you can remove someone and heaven is behind you on that. And you can welcome someone in or restore them or keep them in. And heaven is behind you on that one. That's the authority of the church to do that, okay? Now, um, uh, not only does Jesus uh, give the authority of the church to do that, Jesus expects us to exercise this kind of discipline in serious cases. And this is why I, I thought it just tied together some of the letters to the churches in Revelation, because in the letters to Pergamum and Thyatira, remember we talked about there was people teaching immorality and spreading immorality in the midst of the church, and Jesus said, you need to deal with it. But we never talked about how would a church deal with it? Like, how would, what, what would that even mean if a church dealt with sin in its midst? It's this binding and loosing, removing from fellowship, that's what it's talking about, okay? So in both Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus is very serious. He says, I have something against you. You are harboring immorality in your midst, people teaching it, people spreading it. You need to deal with it. You say, well, what are we supposed to do, yell at them? No. You go back and forth with them. You pray for them. You see if they'll come to repentance. In the end, they won't. We're removing you from fellowship. You cannot serve. You cannot lead. You cannot share the Lord's Supper with us. Okay? And I can show you this. I'm going to skip over uh, Patrick. I'm going to skip over Revelation 2 there um, just for the sake of time. I'm going to show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is practicing this with the church at Corinth. And he says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and that of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So let's just stop there right there, okay? So this is a church, and we see in the rest of this book, this church is really pumped about they've got the gifts going. And by the way, the spiritual gifts are awesome. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues as much as me. I wish more of you would prophesy. So Paul loves the prophetic gifts and the speaking in tongues gifts. He loves those, and the church needs them. They're wonderful. But this church is all pumped. Oh, man, we got so much prophecy happening. We've got so many tongues. We've got miracles happening, all sorts of stuff. And Paul says, you're arrogant, he says. But you ought to mourn because you have a guy in your midst who is actually living with his father's wife. Like, we're not just talking about he's fallen into sin, okay? There's a big difference here. He's not struggling with a sin. He's openly living with his father's wife. And then he's still coming to church and taking the Lord's Supper. And maybe he's a deacon or whatever. He's very involved. And Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? You haven't dealt with this. Now look what he says, how they're supposed to deal with it. Here, the very next line says this. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's how you deal with it. That's the binding and loosing authority that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, which is if someone's going to live like that, you actually need to remove them from fellowship. 
okay? This authority is not an authority for churches to do all kinds of strange things to people or to shame people. Literally, it's not that. Literally, the authority is just that a body can discern someone is openly living in sin and it's encouraging other people to live in sin and it's a mockery to Jesus' name, so we'll remove them from fellowship. That's what it's the authority to do. Jesus says, let him be removed from among you. It's not shame him, not any of, you know, all kinds of creative things that might be called discipline. It's the removal from fellowship of someone in serious sin. Now, of course, a bunch of questions come up with this. First of all, some of you might be freaking out. We're supposed to remove from fellowship everybody who's struggling with sin. And the answer is absolutely not. If we did that, I would have to be the first one to come off stage now and leave, and the rest of you would have to as well. And we would immediately be the smallest church in all of Steinbeck. Because we all sin. Yes, isn't that true? And isn't the church supposed to be a place of grace where we can work through things together? Absolutely. This is not talking about we remove from fellowship anyone who is sinning or who is struggling to sin. This is talking about openly living in sin. So think about what the difference here. This is not someone is struggling with an anger issue or a character issue or, you know, pornography issue or some of that. This is a person who's coming to church every week and involved, not just in the back row. I'll get to that in just a moment. This person, this person in 1 Corinthians 5 is involved. He's part of the core of the church. He's sharing the Lord's Supper. But he's openly living in sin. He's living with his father's wife. And everybody knows that. And then he comes and partakes in the Lord's Supper and teaches and serves as if nothing was going on. Paul says, and Jesus says, and John says in the book of Revelation, uh, they all agree throughout the New Testament, absolutely that is not okay. It makes a mockery of the holiness of Jesus and it spreads people to think, oh, obviously sinning is okay. So this is not about sinning. This is about openly living in some kind of a sin, flaunting it, and then participating in body life as if nothing was wrong, okay? And this brings up a second thing. So it's about openly living in sin, not just sinning, unrepentantly living in sin, flaunting it, and still participating in bodily life. Second thing is, this is not just about someone who attends on a weekend. Very important you understand. See, the way we use the word church now and the way Paul and the New Testament writers use the word church is very different again. They would not have imagined a setting like this. And again, I'm not against, I'm glad you guys are coming. Uh, there is something valuable, that, like, and I think important, about the public proclamation of truth in God's word, about worshiping together in public. I think that's awesome. But there's a lot more to church than just coming and observing. In the New Testament, they did not have any churches like this, huge buildings, big services on a weekend. Their churches were more the equivalent of what we have here in small groups. They, they didn't have large buildings. They met from house to house. And it was like a small group. And they would take the Lord's Supper together in their small groups. And they would worship together in their small groups. And they would serve and minister to each other and use the spiritual gifts in their small groups. So this is not also talking about, you know, hey, so I saw so-and-so at your church on Sunday morning in the back row. And I know they're living in sin. You need to discipline them. This service is open to absolutely anybody. Isn't that true? A service like this? Because you can come to a service like this and not participate in body life. You can come and observe. On any given weekend, in any given service, we, have, we can have Muslims in here, and that happens more often than you might think. We can have atheists in here, and that also happens more often than you might think. Uh, they never compliment me on my sermons, by the way, but anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, we have, we have good Christians in here. We have bad Christians. We have hypocrites. And then we have all of you. 
okay? Wherever you fall in there. Because you guys aren't participating. You're just coming to something. Now, there is some participation, but again, this is, if this is all there is to you for church, you're not experiencing what the Bible's commanding you to do in the New Testament. This part of church is supposed to spur you on to body life, which is using your talents and abilities for Jesus and ministering in the body. That's what it's about. So someone who attends here, this is open to anyone, an atheist, a Muslim, a bad Christian, a good Christian, anybody, this service, you don't discipline someone from a service. You, this is talking about people who are part of the core and part of the fellowship of, of the body. It'd be more like if you had a cell leader. Imagine if you had a cell leader or a host of a cell or something, and they're openly living with someone, not their wife, or they're openly, you know, whatever, swindling people. And they're not even, they're not denying it. They're not repenting of it. They're just doing that. And then they show up every week and they're ministering in the group. They're talking about Jesus. They're sharing from the word. They're having communion. And Paul says, that's not cool. Anybody can come into a service like this and sit down and go. There's no discipline needed. But if we had a cell leader like that, or if we had, you know, Zach, our worship leader, um, or any of the rest of our worship leaders or myself. And by the way, you know, amazing thing about our worship team as uh, all of them except for Zach and now Candy is part-time, but all the rest of them who are up here, they give up a whole weekend to minister here, and they're all volunteers. Isn't that amazing? But anyway, someone who's leading and involved. Now, they come up here, and let's say Zach on Sunday night. You know, Sunday night, for me and him, tomorrow's our day off. And Sunday night, every Sunday night, he's in the bar, and he's, he's drinking and getting drunk and living a party life. And then he comes here and ministers on the weekend. Would that be Okay. That's totally different than someone who comes in the back door and sits in the back row. We invite anybody to come and attend, but to participate in body life, to lead, to serve, that's a very different thing. To openly live in sin like that, not acceptable. Paul says you should remove that one from your midst. You need to remove that one. You can't keep, you can't keep leading and serving when you're openly li- living in sin because it, it puts a mockery to the holiness of Jesus and it makes everybody else think sin is okay, which spreads it. That's what Paul says next in verse 6. He says this, um, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, a little bit of sin, you know, in people who are sharing communion and serving and leading, a little bit of sin like that quickly spreads. It's like mold. It spreads everywhere else and ruins everything it touches. Now, this does not mean there can't be a place of restoration. The church is always redemptive. If myself or Zach we're living in sin like that, and we got removed and church disciplined. It doesn't mean, see you later, you know, you're done for life. Now the church puts in a rest, restorative process if the person's willing to go through it. And maybe after some years or months, depending on what the, what the offense is, there can be restoration and repentance and all these things. The church is redemptive. We don't write people off. But discipline to remove from fellowship those who are openly living in sin is actually expected of us by Jesus because he loves his church and and, and he is holy. Now, I just want to say two more things about this before we get back to Revelation. And the reason I want to do this is because, first of all, a lot of people just sort of ignore these passages and just think, mm. a lot of churches ignore these passages. And they just allow this kind of thing to fester, which, is why, which ends up with Jesus getting mad at the church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira because they refuse to deal with issues. But then on the other hand, you have some people who take these passages to weird places. And so just so that we don't take this to weird places, I don't want us to take 1 Corinthians 5 where it's not supposed to go. So I want to talk about two things 1 Corinthians 5 is not. I've told you what 1 Corinthians 5 is, which is remove from leadership or serving or participating in body life someone who is openly living in sin and not repenting about it. 
Okay? But now I want to talk about two things that it is not. First of all, this has nothing to do with not associating with non-Christians. Someone might read 1 Corinthians 5 and just think, oh, I'm not supposed to, to mingle with immoral people. Therefore, you know, all the guys at work who are just living debauched lives or whatever, I'm not going to hang out with them. If, if, if that's where we took this passage, how would we ever reach out to the world and reach people for Christ? And Paul himself anticipates that because of some of the Corinthians maybe were asking that question already. He says this in verse 9. Just a few verses later, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. <laughs> or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Okay? He's not talking about unsaved people at work. Or unsaved friends. Or unsaved neighbors. Now we shouldn't go and do bad things with them. But certainly we need to reach out to people who are living immoral lives. Absolutely. And he goes on to say this, but now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. And again, we are not talking here about, you know, seven pillars, eight pillars, some of these things where people are struggling with sexual immorality or various things and they're working on it. We're talking about people who are living openly with, you know, in adultery and not repenting and coming and then having communion with us or serving in the church as if it's nothing. No, lots of people struggle, and they wish they could get out of it, and they're working through things. It's a very different thing. Very, very different. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler? Some people maybe need to underline that last one, because that's just as bad as sexual immorality. Swindling in the marketplace and living openly in that is not. God says, I want no part of that in my church. Nothing brings more hate to Jesus, I think, in our world today than people swindling and doing things like that. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So there you see it again. The point is the binding and loosing, that authority to remove someone from fellowship. Okay? Now I want to say one more thing this isn't. Because now some of you are thinking, based on that last part of the passage, that you can't, and I get this question. This is a regular question I get. You can't hang out with family members who call themselves Christians but are living openly immoral lives. Or you can't hang out with friends who call themselves Christians but are living openly immoral lives. You look at this, that last part of that passage and you apply that to your family or your friends and you write off anyone who's Christian living immorally. Okay? And here's what I want to tell you. And at first it's going to sound like a contradiction, but let me help you just discern through this. This is not talking about you not hanging out with your family or with your friends. Now, there might be times to stop hanging out with a friend or a family member where it's just gone over the line. But that's not what this passage is talking about. There are legitimate cases where, you know what? I, I actually need to distance myself. How you are living, for you to just show up at the family gathering like that, like I, actually, it's, there might be cases like that, but that's not what this passage is about. And I have people calling me sometimes and emailing me, and they're like, based on 1 Corinthians 5, you know, uh, so-and-so is coming to my family gathering and they call themselves a Christian, but they're living whatever. Homosexual relationship. They're living in this, they're living in that. And based on 1 Corinthians 5, now they're causing a rift in the family. I'm not showing up. Now again, there actually might be cases where for other reasons, you'd, they actually maybe shouldn't come to the gathering or you shouldn't go. But that's not what this verse is talking about. That's your family. That's not the church. The point of these passages is what? The church 
I can't have Zach living openly in sin and then coming up here and making a mockery of Jesus' name by leading us in worship. Or I can't live openly in sin unrepentantly, even though Zach and myself obviously sin and we have to work through things, but we can't live openly in sin like that and unrepentantly and then come up here and pretend to minister or a cell leader. That's very different than a family gathering. Your family is not the church. So you might have reasons to rebuke someone in your family and not show up, or they shouldn't show up. There might be reasons, but it just doesn't have to do with 1 Corinthians 5. Does that make sense? Because it's not the church. And same with, your, with a friend. You might continue, you might have had a friend for years, and he's a Christian, but he's just off living a very immoral life now. You can still go for coffee with him and try to win him back from his ways. Amen? And there might be other reasons why at a certain point you just cause a relationship and say, I just, I can't go any further. That's very different, though, than allowing this person to participate in the Lord's Supper with you and allow him to lead people into worship and all sorts of things. Those are two very different things. Does that make sense? So that's what 1 Corinthians 5 is, and that's why what 1 Corinthians 5 isn't. Now, just before I get back to Revelation 3, just, and because I just like to do these things, what if, okay, because this, this just brings, one more thing comes to my mind. What if you get invited to? What if you get invited to a gay wedding? I just saw four or five people wake up in the upper deck there. Whoa! <laughs> What if you get, because this, 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 all what we're talking about here, this is where it all starts to come together. We're talking, what we're doing here is some Matthew 16 binding and loosing, which is searching the scriptures prayerfully and deeply and saying, Lord, how does this apply to our lives? And this is something that's happening, and we get questions about this more and more and more. What happens when a son or daughter, or a brother or sister, or a nephew or niece, or a longtime friend who is living a homosexual life, and they want to get married to their partner, and now they invite you to their wedding, what do you do? Now, before I tell you what I think and why I think it, I just want to give one little caveat here because this is something that is not explicitly said in Scripture. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try and, and parse things and reason things through. Um, but there are Christians who disagree with me on this, and they're good people, and that is okay. This is not a salvation issue, but I'm going to tell you what I think and why. I think that we as Christians should say no. I think we should say no. And I'll tell you why, but let me just go one other place first. Before I say more about the no, there's something else I want to say, and that is, remember we were just talking about family gatherings and things like that. Should you go to a family gathering or have someone for dinner if you have family members who are living in a homosexual relationship and can they bring their partner? And I would say, yes. Aren't we supposed to love people? Aren't we supposed to love people? I get this question a lot. Should I go to the family gathering? It might be confusing for my kids. You know what? Actually, I think the best thing is not to hide it from your kids. They're going to grow up confused if you hide it from them and never talk to them about it, and now they're adults and they have to deal with it. So why not show them how much we love all people? And then if they have questions, let's talk to them about how do we love people and we disagree with something. Yes? So we should have people, if there's a, a, a gay couple and they're, in your, and they're in your life or they're in your family and they want to come over, you should have them over, I think. And you should be able to go to their house and you should be able to have a friendship. 
and be able to talk about what we believe and all that sort of stuff. If, if it can work, I think that's amazing. But you say, well, then how can you say we should say no to going to the wedding? And again, I know some of you might disagree with me, and you might have gone to one already. My point here isn't to shame anyone or point anyone out or say you know, anything like that. But here's why I think we should say no and why I feel strongly about this is because I think when you say yes to a wedding, you're not saying yes to the people, you're saying yes to the homosexuality itself. I think you're actually, that's what I think. And I think that's how the world interprets it too. I think at this point, you're not saying yes to loving two people, which is what a family gathering or having people over for dinner and hanging out and being friends is. I think when you go to the wedding, what you're saying is, I approve of the homosexuality itself. And that this is a marriage. And I know that's a very unpopular stance today, but here's the thing. The Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is a sin. It actually does. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we need to love all people too and reach out to them. And Jesus reached out to everybody. We need to do both. But the Bible is very clear from Genesis 2 right to the end of Revelation. There's no question that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. We as a church cannot be embarrassed about that and it is very important, just like we see in 1 Corinthians 5 and Jesus with the authority and, you know, for binding and loosing all this sort of stuff. It is very important for the holiness of Jesus in Jesus' name that we, not, that we do our best not to ever be seen to promote that which Jesus condemns. It's not good for people and it's not good for the witness of Jesus. Now, again, we need to love people. And you say, so if you get an invite, what do you do? See, there's multiple choices in front of you when you get an invite. One thing you can do, this is classic Mennonite, passive, right? Is, uh, and it's not just Mennonites, I think it's all cultures, but I'm Mennonite, so I can say that, and I'm not bigoted or anything, because I am one. But anyway, you know, classic Mennonite is you get this invitation, don't know what to do with this, don't know what to do with this, just ignore it and hope it goes away, yes? <laughs> that didn't happen, let's not talk about it, maybe they'll think I just didn't see it. Done. I think, I think we can do better. Another thing we can do is just say yes. Now, I know some Christians think this through, and they, you know, they want to reach out to the people and, and maybe not condone. I disagree with that approach, but you can say yes. And, but sometimes I, what I don't like is the approach of just saying yes because you're too scared to say no. And I also am very wary of saying yes because I'm afraid of the message it gives to people about God's word and about Jesus' holiness. And then there's a third way. It's not ignoring it. It's not just saying yes. It's saying no, but doing it person to person. Whether you phone them up because they're too far away or whether you take both of them out or one or however it works to a nice dinner and you actually sit them down and it's going to be hurtful for them, yes. It actually will be. And it's going to be difficult and they might not receive it well and they might in the end reject your overtures of friendship because they might see what you're doing as a rejection of them as people, not as rejections of something. They might do all of those things and that you can't control. But I would say the way of courage, the pathway of courage is I want to look you in the eye and I want to tell you whether you can receive it or not that I love you and I want to get together with you and have a relationship with you but this is why I will not come to this. And you tell them in person, relationally, no. That's what I think we should do prayerfully. And actually, instead of avoiding these things, I have heard some tremendous testimonies in this last week of people who, in situations like this, met with people and did it relationally but had the courage to stand for right. And the opportunities 
The opportunities to be salt and light for Jesus' kingdom in moments like that are wonderful, whether they're received that way or not. And now this brings us back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, a letter to the church at Philadelphia. And Jesus says, I know your works. Hold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. This is a little church. They're not going to do great things in terms of human size or money or missions. They're just little power. They're just barely hanging on. But Jesus, two things. And this is where we finish the message. But they've been faithful. And he says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Two things. So, first of all, you've not denied my name. That's good. And most Christians can agree with that. But a lot of Christians, and I've said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it over and over and over again until we really get it. They think to themselves, I'll never deny Jesus' name in, the, in terms of those five letters, J-E-S-U-S. I'll never deny Jesus' name. But when it comes to Jesus' word, then we want to compromise because some of the things in here are highly unpopular and controversial sometimes for our current culture and politically incorrect. And we think, well, I'll never deny Jesus' name. No, I love Jesus. I love the red letters in the New Testament, but some of the other parts I don't really like, and we compromise on that stuff. No, no, Jesus says, he's the one who wrote this book. Basically, what he's saying is, you can not deny my name, but if you deny this, you're embarrassed about me because I wrote it. If you compromise on this, it's just like denying his name. So two things he says to this little church that's barely hanging on. He says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus is saying to the church, he's calling us, and even when it gets harder and harder and harder to do this in the years to come, He's saying, we've got to tell the truth in love, whether they receive it as love or not. And we've got to stay true to Jesus. And we have to love people. We just do. You've kept my word. And then the promise that comes with that. Oh, it's a beautiful promise. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have kept on keeping true and not denying me and living in love, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is such a wonderful promise and so applicable to our lives. Let's just make sure we know what it is and what it isn't. Lots of people over the years have taken this as a promise of the pre-tribulation rapture. That this is a promise, and this is what people point to in the book of Revelation. See, the book of Revelation teaches the pre-tribulation rapture. Jesus is going to take the church of Philadelphia out before they go through the tribulation. So let me just talk about that, and let's just see what it is. First of all, this cannot be a promise about the rapture. Do you want to know how I know 100%? Because none of the Christians at Philadelphia got raptured. Am I right? If any of them got raptured, we missed it. Isn't that true? They all died. They actually all died. Not one of that church got raptured and not one of them is still alive today. I can say that with 100% certainty. They all died. So if this is a promise about rapture from tribulation, kind of a dud of a promise. Because none of them got raptured. This isn't a promise about the rapture. This has something to do with their lifetime. This promise, Jesus says to this little church, because you have been faithful, because of that, I am going to keep you from some hour of trial that came on the Roman Empire. And commentators disagree on what that, that was, but something big you know, it could have been a famine. There's a big famine talked about in the book of Acts that might have related to what happened here. But something big, you say, I'm going to keep you from it. Now, the second question is, what does the word from mean? Because again, because of pre-tribulation teaching has been so popular in Western evangelicalism in the last century, 
People have taken this promise from as being taken out of. I'm going to take you out so you don't experience tribulation, so you don't experience problems. Now, first of all, have any of you found Jesus to work like that in your lives? You're about to go through a marriage problem. Let me take you bodily out of that. Does he do that for you? No. So far, I have had no out-of-body experiences yet. When troubled times come, I'm always in my body. And I always just have to feel it and experience it because Jesus doesn't do that. The phrase, the Greek phrase here for from is not out of it. It's tereso ek. And let me show you what tereso ek means. And we'll go to one other passage. It's John chapter 17, verse 5. And the reason John 17, 5 is important is because John wrote both passages. So it's the same guy writing both on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How does he use this phrase elsewhere? Well, John 17 is an important passage. It is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples and by extension, all of us. And he prays this. I, this is Jesus speaking, do not ask that you take them out of the world. I want you to notice that. Don't you wish you could go back in time and ask him to change that prayer? Like, Jesus, why, why? There's a lot of trouble happening in this world. I wish that you would take us out of trouble. But Jesus starts his prayer, even though I wish he would have prayed it differently. He starts his prayer with, I do not pray that you would take them out. Instead, but that you keep them from, same person writing, John is writing both these, same phrase, Tereso Ek, from the evil one. What does from mean in John 17, 5? Very clearly, it does not mean bodily taken out of. It cannot mean that. He's just prayed, do not take them out of this world. The phrase tereso ek means kept through. Held, covered, protected, but taken through. Not that the evil one never gets to tempt us. Not that the evil one never gets to do things like he did to Job where we go through trials. All of these things will happen in our life. But he does not ask we be taken out of those things. He asks that the Father would keep us through those things. And now the promise of Revelation 3 verse 10 comes alive. This isn't a promise about something in the future that Jesus is going to rescue us from some time of tribulation. He doesn't take us out of tribulation. This is a promise that if, the if is, if you keep his word and stay faithful to him, that doesn't mean you're perfect, but you just hold on. Whatever trial you're going through, this says, I will keep you from, I will carry you through to the other side. It's also a promise for our church because the more we stand up for truth in our salt and light, there's going to become more pressure and more opposition. And Jesus says, the answer to getting through opposition is not to compromise. The answer is to continue to be salt and light. And if you do that, he will get us through to the other side. It might look in your trial or like in our trial, like we're not going to make it. But Jesus promises, I will keep you through it if you will stay faithful to me. You will get to the other side of whatever you're going through if you will obey Jesus and stay faithful to him. Is that not an incredible promise? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. Thank you for these letters to the churches. And thank you for this promise. You are so gracious and good. Thank you for this promise that if we will stay faithful to you, you will carry us through 
trials and tribulations. Help us as individuals and as this church to reflect your holiness and your love. In your precious name we pray, amen.